The reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21, if you'd like to be turning there. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Sir. Little mistake there. Luke twelve sixteen through 21. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Zach, did you have an invitation song? 195 195 will be the song of encouragement. How many of you have traveled to Asheville, North Carolina to see Biltmore, the Biltmore Estates? I think probably a lot of us have. I've been there on one occasion. And I don't know about now, but at least at one time, it was the largest privately owned residence in the United States. And a man by the name of William A.V. Cecil owned it. And he would go every day to make sure that everything that was happening at Biltmore Estates was happening just as it ought to happen. And so as he would arrive each day, he would go to one particular place and then to the other throughout, systematically going throughout the house and the grounds to make sure that everything was right. Well, what was so funny, or to me, I found it humorous, he would leave one section of the home, and as he did, the the servants or the employees in that particular section would get on a two-way radio and warn the other ones that he was on his way. So they could be at their best. And uh, <clears throat> so they could be prepared, right? He wanted, uh, or they kind of looked out for each other, and they didn't uh, want him to catch them not being at their very best at all times. But Jesus told us a parable, just read for us, that kind of points to the same idea of being ready. Because Paul warned us in Second Corinthians 5 verse 10, He said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether good or bad. So I think we all need to uh, be prepared. We're all in need of preparing in all aspects of life, particularly in our spiritual lives. We need to prepare for that. But the, the 
The difference between our preparation spiritually and the preparation of those employees at the Biltmore residence is we do not have someone on a two-way radio calling ahead and saying, okay, the Lord will be there. He's been here. Now He'll be there next. Because that's not how it's going to work, is it? When the Lord returns, He will return and everyone will know it all at the same time. And there's not going to be any warning. When we read, when we read Matthew 24 and we get over to verse 36, He begins to talk about that day and hour knoweth no man. He's talking about the return of uh, Christ's return and that there's not going to be any warning signs that you just have to be ready. And so as we look at the parable before us today, and we consider this question, and I think the question ought to be, am I ready? And that's the title of the sermon this morning. We need to consider that. Am I ready? There was a man who had so many earthly belongings and wealth that he had to tear down barns and build bigger barns. There, Throughout my life of studying this particular parable, some things have always bothered me about it. Some things have bothered me about it. Uh, there are a lot of things to be bothered about in this parable, but just the sheer wastefulness to me of tearing down a barn to build a bigger barn, just build another barn, in my opinion, instead of wasting what you've already got. And that has always bothered me. But he had so much, he didn't care. And he wasn't prepared. And of course, his actions caused God to say, Thou fool, this night thy soul will be required. The love of wealth and all things physical, though, was not peculiar to this particular rich fool, was it? We look back through the history of uh, humanity, particularly that recorded for us in the Bible, and we read John 12, beginning with verse 4, Judas betrayed the Christ because of his uh, greed for his love of money. Ananias and Sapphira allowed themselves to be tempted to lie to God, Acts chapter 5, over money. Achan <clears throat> stole uh, from the spoils of Jericho. We'll read Joshua chapter 7, verse 1 and following. And because of his greed of money and all things physical, when they went to take Ai, the small city, they were defeated. It caused the rich young ruler of Mark chapter 10 to... Go away sorrowfully, rejecting the Christ. It caused the money changers, John chapter 2, to turn the Lord's house into a den of thieves. That's what greed will do. Of course, we get over to 2 Kings chapter 5, and we learn about uh, a man who was cleansed from leprosy, and Elisha's servant followed after him. And because of greed, he went to seek after that money, and ultimately he was struck as a leper. So I think the parable of the rich fool teaches a lesson that's very much needed in our society today. Am I ready? Well, I don't know. It depends on what we're talking about, right? Am I ready to uh, uh, prepare to go to work tomorrow? Am I ready to do whatever I need to do? Am I ready for when the Christ returns? That's the question, isn't it? That's the real question. We need to consider that. And I think the rich fool teaches us that. And it was through the teaching of this parable that Christ taught a much needed lesson. So as we are encouraged to determine this day, am I ready? I want us to first notice the environment surrounding this particular parable. Like any other time, Christ taught publicly. The Jews and the leaders would come out to Him 
and they would, in essence, assault him. They wanted to attack him verbally, and they tried to do uh, attack him physically on occasion, but they tried to assault him each time he tried to reach the hearts of his hearers. So as we look at our first point, the environment that surrounded this particular parable, notice uh, the reaction to Jesus almost every time that he taught. Now, as we look at this environment, it is based in the events of chapter 11. So we can back up a chapter and we read about Jesus having gone into the home of a certain Pharisee and having gone to lunch. Of course, we recall the the account. The, the Pharisee rebuked our Lord because he did not wash his hands prior to eating. Well, when Jesus addressed that problem, he uh, addressed him for considering all things physical, not being concerned about things of a spiritual nature. Now, <clears throat> there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus would have employed hygienic actions, but he was making a point, wasn't he? He knew the heart of this Pharisee, and he knew that if he did not wash his hands, that this Pharisee would make a point concerning that, and it would give the Christ an opportunity to teach him. Well, after Christ rebuked this man, there was also a lawyer, and he said, now wait a minute, that rebuke that you gave to the Pharisees also applies to lawyers, Luke 11 Verse 45, and of course the Lord, not one to uh, entangle himself in the wranglings of the Jewish leaders. He just simply went straight to the point of the problem, the heart. And as he continued to address this issue of carnality and in all things physical, his enemies began to trap him or to try to trap him in some things that he had said. And of course, it is with that environment that we come into chapter 12. So it wasn't anything new that his enemies would assault him. And understanding the teachings that Jesus taught were normally twofold. He wanted to tear down, he wanted to pluck up, he wanted to build, and he wanted to plant. Sometimes you have to destroy before you can build up, right? You go into uh, your new garden patch every year and you have to till all that up before you can plant your garden. And... When you go and plant your your garden, the seed has to fall into the ground and it has to go through this decay process. And then from that decay process, it begins to sprout. So there's always a tearing down and a plucking uh, and a plucking up, as well as a building and a planting. And so with Jesus, he gave this twofold uh, teaching. And chapter twelve is one that reveals the problem of spiritual disregard and its consequences. So he's tearing down. He's pointing out some things. And of course, it is in the midst of this particular assault within this environment that Jesus admonished the listener. He had some things to say, didn't he? There were some things they needed to understand. In fact, he gave a series of nine admonishments. He warned against the leaven of the Pharisees, Luke chapter 12. Of course, we understand that example of the leaven. You put leaven in bread and it causes it to rise. And we look back in the Old Testament, it talks about the way they were to make their unleavened bread as they were to observe the Passover. They would have to go several days in advance and sweep out all of their house, get rid of all the leaven. You couldn't even store it in your houses and they had to sweep the corners in case some had gotten in the floor and by chance found its way into the bread. 
Because why? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's the same thing with teaching things that are that is not in accordance with the Bible. Just a little error can cause a faithful congregation to be destroyed. He went on and warned against the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That's another study in and of itself, but uh, what we do know is the only sin from which we cannot be forgiven is one of which we will not repent. So whether or not we understand exactly what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was at that time, we know that if we can repent of any sin, we can be forgiven. But sin can cause a person to go so far that their hearts become hardened and they're unable to repent. He warned against covetousness. When we're only concerned with earthly gain, people soon forget about God. I was speaking with Brother Carl uh, at our uh, Christmas party we had Friday night, the wonderful potluck that we had, and we were talking about evangelism throughout the world, and we were talking about particularly Brother Curry Montague, who came and spoke to us, uh, I guess last Sunday it was, and uh, I said, it's so much easier to go into other parts of the world to preach the gospel and to have people to receive that. And he said, we've got too much. The United States doesn't need God. And brethren, that's the truth, isn't it? We have too much physically in this nation, the richest nation that has ever existed, and I love our country. Nothing wrong with having wealth. If you've got wealth, God bless you for having wealth, as long as you receive that through hard work. But when we have so much, and we put so much ahead of God, we come to the point, and I think our nation and world has come to this point, uh, maybe Europe even worse than our nation, we no longer need God. So... He warned against covetousness. He warned against unnecessary worry, too, as one of the admonishments. If we cannot affect the situation, we need to pray to God and cast that care upon Him and put our trust in Him that He'll always do that which is right. And so He warned against that. He warned against the failure to watch. <clears throat> I think perhaps that's the whole point of the parable, isn't it? Be ready. Be prepared. Watching. We have to be prepared. We have to be ready to go on the trip when we go on the trip, right? How many of you, when you traveled over to Biltmore Estates, did you did you pack before you decided to leave? Did you maybe get ready the night before? Or if you were going to leave that evening, you got ready this morning? Or did you wait till five minutes before time to leave? Now, that's normally how it happens at my house. But it's not how it's supposed to happen, right? We're supposed to prepare to go on our trip. And so, uh, that's what he admonished them to do. He admonished against unfaithfulness. See, they, he was talking to the Jews at that time. Christ lived under the Jewish religion. Uh, Christianity wasn't established until he died on the cross, the first Pentecost after he came out of the grave. And so he is encouraging these Jews, be faithful to God, turn to God, change your whole mindset. God has entrusted us with the gospel and we must properly use it throughout the world. He warned against spiritual division, didn't he? We need to be able to leave tradition behind when tradition gets in the way. Nothing wrong with, nothing wrong with tradition. As long as we do not try to make a tradition into a doctrine and as long as tradition does not interfere with God's laws, nothing wrong with doing things a certain way. But, when that becomes a problem, 
We need to be able to leave it behind if necessary. He warned against ignoring the signs of the time. Now, what was he talking about? What were the signs of the time? Well, it was Jesus' time, wasn't it? And we look back through the Old Testament, and we read the prophecies about the coming Messiah. And they saw all the things that the Christ was doing, and they ignored the signs of the time. The Jewish religion today still looks for a Savior to come. But He already came. He's not coming again, Hebrews chapter 10. There's no more sacrifice for sin. He's not coming again to sacrifice Himself. He came and sacrificed Himself. And they were ignoring that. So you're not supposed to ignore that, are you? And He warned against that. He warned against failing to make things uh, right in one's life and being prepared to stand in judgment. It is the case that all men will stand in judgment. There is appointed a time to every man to die, and then cometh the judgment. One of the wisest admonitions of the chapter, I think, is often overlooked. On the hills of personal conflict, Jesus tells the parable. One brother comes to Jesus, beginning in verse 13 of uh, Luke 12, in order to gain what he believes was his rightful portion of an inheritance. And he wanted the Lord to be a judge or a divider over them. He wanted the Lord to say, okay, you get so much and you get the other. Of course, being the master teacher, he gives great insight on how to handle many of the problems that happen in the church today. And you know what that was? Stay out of them. Right? Stay out of them. If there's an issue somewhere... It may not be your business, so you need to stay out of it. If it's not a doctrinal issue, it's a personal issue, those two people need to figure it out. What did Christ say? You had two brothers come to Him, and He said, Brother, or He said, Lord, uh, divide this. He said, Who made me a judge over your personal matters? Could He have judged their personal matters? Absolutely, He could have. But He stayed out of it. You need to go figure that out on your own. Act like adults, act like people who are followers of God. Figure out your problems on your own. That's what Paul was telling those in Corinth, right? We spoke about that Wednesday night. And uh, taking your brother to law, is there not anyone? Can you not figure this out on your own without having to take your brother to court on frivolous matters? And we're not talking about criminal things. But can't you figure that out on your own? You know, there's some things we just need to stay out of. And let people figure it out. I think the best way to change people in the world is to take the gospel to them. And that's what Christ did. He's trying to change and affect the things happening in this world. If the church would do that, I believe the social plagues of this world would go away, could be overcome. If we teach the gospel, if people were willing to listen, abortion would go away. The support of homosexuality would go away. Slavery would go away. And we see that. That has happened in the world. Everywhere the gospel is gone, slavery has ended. Anywhere the gospel goes, it can take care of the problems where it goes. The environment of the, of the parable can be easily seen. There's always an assault upon the Lord, even though He was admonishing the listeners. But what was the true essence of the parable. What did it really mean? Let's notice that essence. That's our second point. What did the master want his audience to take home with them? 
What was the reason behind giving the parable? He didn't just speak a parable because it was interesting. He spoke a parable because he wanted to point out the real meaning of life and the purpose that we have here. Luke 12, verse 15. Let's be reminded of that. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Why did Christ call the rich man a fool? Someone looks at that and they say, well, that's not very polite. Well, it's directly related to the purpose of the parable, isn't it? It, He was a fool because he lacked good judgment. That's what makes a person a fool, isn't it? You lack good judgment. You make poor decisions. And it happens over and over and over. We're not talking about a a one-off here, right? We're not talking about making a mistake in this life and then you learn from it. That's called wisdom. That's learning it the hard way. But it's still a learning process. A fool is someone who never learns. A fool is someone who continually makes the wrong choice. See, he was not living with the idea, am I ready? He didn't care if he was ready. He thought that he had a lot of money, he was wealthy, and that's all he needed to worry about. And he encouraged himself with that, didn't he? He said, look at all this wonderful things. I've got enough to eat, drink, and be merry for the rest of my life. Now, little did he know he was right. But the rest of his life would end that night. That reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar. We look through the, the book of Daniel, and Nebuchadnezzar was warned about his uh, his pride and he walks out on uh, out of the palace and he looks out over this great Babylon, he said, which I have created. And then he was struck. He forgot who he was. His good sense was taken away from him. He lived out in the, in the wilderness as an animal. He ate as an animal. He existed as an animal until 30 times, whatever that was, if it was a month or, or uh, whatever it was. And then God allowed him to come back to his senses. But for all those reasons, the rich man of this parable was a fool. Christ asked this question, Matthew 16, verse 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? We read about the rich man in Lazarus. We read about the rich man having all these wonderful things, dressed in purple, uh, he fared sumptuously every day. He he ate whatever he wanted to eat. He had whatever he wanted. And then we have the poor beggar Lazarus who didn't have anything. In fact, he was so hungry, he wanted the scraps or the crumbs that fell off the table. And he was thrown down by the gate every day to beg for alms. And he didn't have enough strength in him because he was so sick to knock the dogs out of his face. Now what would... The rich man have given to have had himself extracted from torments after he died. He would have given everything he had ever possessed. So what good was it to have the riches that he had? Being rich doesn't make you evil. Being poor doesn't make you good. It all depends on the individual. If a person who is godly and they have a lot of wealth, good for them. But that they didn't accumulate that wealth if they're faithful and if they're Christians by being in love with money. 
They simply worked hard and God blessed them. The very life of Solomon shows what reaction one should have in regard to the vanities of this world. What was the reason? What was the essence, the reason of the parable? Don't be in love with this world. Now I want us to step back in time a little bit and go back to the to the great King Solomon and let's look at his reaction when he came face to face with what life really was about. What did life mean? He searched for the answers, didn't he? He searched for the purpose. Why am I here? I think he was in a in a very unique position to find that answer as well. He was, I'm sure, the wealthiest man in the world at that time. He was the wisest man to ever live, second to the Christ. And so he had the means and the opportunity to be able to carry out this science project that he had conducted. What is the meaning of life? He left no stone unturned in his quest, did he? Notice some of the things he talked about. He tried labor. He devoted himself to wisdom. He experienced everything you could experience in this life. He gave his life to to pleasure. He tried laughter. He tried wine. He tried women. He tried great works. He had servants and maids to carry out his every single desire. He was the richest man of his time. He simply was great and surpassed all that came before him. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 9. So what did he come up with? What did he conclude? Ecclesiastes 2.15 As it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. When we look in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 17, we learn pretty quickly, Solomon hated his life. He was not happy with what was going on. He didn't know the meaning or the purpose or... In reality, he had forgotten the meaning and the purpose. There was no fulfillment in carrying with him the things that didn't matter in this life. Was he prepared? Maybe he thought he was at one time, but he came to the understanding that he wasn't. I think we read about this rich fool, and we understand that when his time came for life to be over, I think he probably felt the same way. So what can we learn from this great parable? We notice the environment. We notice the essence of the parable. But let's notice the explanation. That's our third and final point. We must be able to apply the principles of this parable to our lives today or they do us no good. For that to happen, we must focus on the preaching of Jesus. Let's listen to His words. Let's pay attention to what He's saying. His sermon was designed to rebuke covetousness. Or the love of this world. I think sometimes we confuse covetousness and the love of this world with being hungry for riches and money. Well, that can be a big part of it. But when we read about the man named Demas, Demas is mentioned three times in the New Testament. He's highly praised by Paul once. He's simply called by name the other time. And then the last time we read about Demas, he had forsaken Paul having loved this present world. What does that mean? He loved living in this world. I can understand that, can't you? This is a nice place. God has blessed us with a beautiful world, but He loved living in this world more than He could ever love God. And so He forsook Paul. 
And he went back to enjoying this world and living in this world. Covetousness is a literal desire to just have more and more. You can never have enough. You can never have enough. And that's not in a good sense either. In this particular context, it's, it is used in conjunction with material possession. When one begins to trust in the finances or the things that they have, then they pretty quickly leave God. Matthew nineteen twenty three. then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Is it impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Notice Job, the richest man of the east. Notice Abraham. He was so rich, he had a personal army. Right? He could go and and, uh, rescue his uh, nephew Lot. We go on down through the history of, uh, uh, of of humanity and we run into Solomon. He was the richest man of his time. We read about those in the New Testament who were wealthy and who were rich. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man and buried Jesus in his own tomb. Nothing wrong with being rich. We can get to heaven being rich, but it is difficult because the draw of having more and more is something we have to stand up against. 1 John two fifteen through 17 talks about why we're not to love the world. There's nothing in the world in the sense we're talking about the sinfulness of the world that ought to draw us to it, but boy, it sure does. We must be concerned with laying up our treasures in heaven and not on earth, right? Matthew six nineteen through 21, Jesus talked about how people can break in and steal your things and, and uh, even if they don't steal them over time, they will just uh, disintegrate, they'll rot or they'll just... Uh, tear apart over time. They just go away, right? Not so in heaven. We have to be diligent in making that which is most important to us being that which God wants us to do. I don't think there's a more tragic mistake in this life than when we lose our focus on where we need to be. Through the preaching of Christ, we can easily determine the problem that He was getting at, right? So what is the application for us now? The rich fool could only see his self-worth. I want us to notice 12 times in verses 17 through 19, he mentioned the reasons for his success in life. I, my, and thine. Me, me, me. At, At no time did he offer thanks to God. He had forgotten all good and perfect gifts come from above, James 1, 17. Again, Nebuchadnezzar learned that in Daniel 4, verse 30. This great Babylon that I created. God is is in control of things in this world, both physically and spiritually. He'll bless those who work hard. There may be those who work hard that, that do not receive the blessings, maybe even as one who is not faithful to God and works hard. That's just kind of the way it goes in this life sometimes. People have done things in this world. God allows us to make our own decisions. We may have someone who's a faithful Christian and who works very hard but doesn't make the wisest of choices. And so sometimes it doesn't pay off for them. The application is that God is in control of all things and we ought to offer to Him our sincere thanks and live for Him. 
Our souls are going to be required by God at some point. The writer of Hebrews warned this, Hebrews 9.27, is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. And since none of us can escape physical death, there's only one thing that we can do. Amos made this statement, Amos 4, verse 12, prepare to meet thy God. Are we prepared today? Am I ready? I need to be. If I'm not, I need to become a Christian. If I'm not a Christian, we learn in the New Testament exactly how we do that. We need to hear what God has to say. And that's kind of what we've been talking about here. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Faith is a definite requirement, Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. We have to turn our lives around. If we're not being faithful to God, we have to, have to stop that. We have to turn our lives around. We call that repentance, right? That means literally an about face. It's a Roman military term. We turn around. We go the other direction. Uh, Jesus said, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. We have to repent. And how do we demonstrate our repentance? Paul said, bring forth works worthy of repentance. Demonstrate in your life that you're sorry for the things that have happened. Turn to God. Get rid of the, the, the sins in our lives that separate us. We know that Paul told those in Rome that with the mouth or with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And we see the Ethiopian eunuch do that. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then baptism for the remission of sin. We get down into the water. We're buried. We come up, Romans 6, 3 and 4. We're baptized into Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. And for the sole purpose of being added to the Lord's church and having our sins washed away, Acts twenty two sixteen. If you've done that and you've become unfaithful, come back to God today through repentance and confession. We have to confess our sins to God. We don't confess them to the Pope or to the priest or to the pastor or whatever the case may be. Now, we'll confess our faults one to another and ask each other to pray for us, but it's not like the Catholic system of faith. We confess to God our sins. If we've harmed other people, we confess our sin to them and we ask them to forgive us. If it's of a public nature, we make a public confession. I haven't been living faithfully. And then we ask God to forgive us and He is just and faithful to forgive us. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation at this time, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.